You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Do you get enough sleep? If you don't, this episode will change the way you think about it. Sleep is the center of health, so naturally it would have an impact on asthma environmental allergies, which is why we're covering it today. Dr. Carroll joins us to discuss sleep, from how it impacts your overall health, mood, productivity, hunger, and much more. She unpacks what good sleep looks like, how to figure out if you're getting enough sleep, and of course, how sleep impacts allergies and vice versa. Are you ready to sleep more? Let's jump in. Hi, everyone. Today we're talking to Dr. Carol Yuan Duclair, uh, who is really well certified. She's certified in pulmonary, critical care, internal medicine, and sleep medicine. And today's topic is sleep and allergies, which I think is a super important topic in general because sleep is just such an important part of our lives. And that's really the first question that we want to ask Dr. Carol is why is sleep so important? Thank you, Dr. Gupta, for having me today. Definitely sleep is important because it's the Swiss army knife of health. That's the analogy I like to make. It helps fights off diseases. It jumpstarts our metabolism and it boosts our mood, energy, productivity. So science shows that people who routinely get between seven to nine hours of sleep They are happier, healthier, and more successful. The opposite is also true. People who are not getting enough sleep in the long run can cause weight gain. People crave unhealthy foods, and it also saps your energy. Just one night of sleep deprivation can make people feel tired, your blood sugar spike. So sleep is definitely the one thing that by committing to it, it's the center of health and it makes everything else easier. When you talk about sleep, so you said seven to seven to eight, seven to nine hours. What about napping? I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm very curious about napping. Yeah, that's a great question. So napping counts in the total amount as well. The question with napping is usually outside of the amount. Is it good or bad habit? And that actually really depends on the person. If the nap helps you feel better, get get that boost of energy you need. Because with our circadian rhythm, there is that slump in our circadian rhythm, usually in the early afternoon. And it's very natural that after lunch, people can feel tired. So nap 15 to 30 minutes can help reset everything so that, you know, you have the energy to carry on for the rest of the day. The other camp of people is nap actually affects their sleep at night. So it makes it harder for them to fall asleep or makes them wake up early. It's almost almost have the same effect as caffeine to some people. And so for those people, then try to avoid naps, push through the day and consolidate everything at nighttime would be their better option. 
Is there a different quality of sleep? So if I can sleep eight hours, but maybe the quality of sleep, does that impact the overall outcome of having eight hours of sleep, even maybe with eight hours of restless sleep? Great question. So you're asking the difference between sleep quantity and quality. So amount versus quality. The answer is they're both important. We can't shortchange one to get the other. So the quality speaks to the architecture and that's the light, deep and REM sleep. And deep and REM sleep, they are the restorative stages of sleep. With the two combined, they are about roughly about 30 percent, 30, maybe sometimes to 40 percent of our sleep. And it's about getting the right amount as opposed to the more, the better. That is not true because light stages have their function too. what we want, what good quality sleep means is that you get the right portion of each stage. Quantity is what we talked about. So the general recommendation is seven to nine hours. That is what the average amount of sleep the general population needs, but there are definitely outliers. Some people are less and that's still fine. So six, six and a half. And there's some people who need a little bit more. But generally, seven to nine is the the recommendation. So for me, I would have to ask, how do you know if you're functioning well on less sleep? So the, the question is, so what is the amount of sleep that your body naturally needs? One way I tell people is think about the last time when you were on vacation. What time did you get up and how much sleep did you get? When we're on vacation, away from the stress, our work, day-to-day grind, sleep is in its most natural form. So that gives us a lot of information about our natural sleep. So that's one way to have an educated guess. Another thing that you can look at is how you feel, your energy level in the day. If you feel sleepy, and the way to tell that is some people just know, like if you fall asleep easily, driving, watching TV, at work, then yeah, you're sleepy. Another way, if you want to be more objective about it is to use a questionnaire called the Epworth sleepiness scale. And that questionnaire asks you a series of questions, a different situation, how like you are to fall asleep in different situation and you would score them. So depending on your score, it's more than 11. That usually indicates that you have excessive daytime sleepiness. If you are excessively sleepy, that directly indicates that either you are lacking in the amount so you're not getting enough sleep or you're suffering quality. So yeah, that, that I think those two ways by looking at your sleep pattern on vacation and your, if you are excessively sleepy, these would be the way to get an estimate of well, the amount of sleep your body needs. Now, I think that this question about sleep. So again, this is like we're doing a lot of episodes now with other doctors who aren't allergists. And the question is, why are we talking to someone who is a sleep expert when this is a podcast dedicated to allergies, asthma and immunology? And my first thought is as someone who used to have uncontrolled asthma, I would wake up like two to three times a night because I couldn't breathe. Um, And I always like slept with my rescue inhaler beside me because it was my best friend because I knew I could wake up with problems breathing. So that's one reason I feel like it's important what we're talking to you about sleep. But can you explain a little bit the connection between asthma and sleep and then maybe allergy and sleep? Yeah, I definitely feel that sleep and allergy is closely related. 
the, the two are bi-directional. So meaning allergy can affect sleep and not sleeping well can make allergies harder to control because allergy is, it causes a lot of inflammation in our airways from our sinus to the back of the throat to the airways that go into our lungs. And that inflammation is essentially what gives some of the symptoms of allergies. So stuffy nose, cough, and these symptoms continue at night. They wake people up. So sleep gets fragmented. It also cuts into the amount of sleep because you wake up and you might have problem going back to sleep. So when allergies are not controlled, both in terms of your what we said about the quantity and quality, both get affected. The other part is what you're saying, that asthma at night wakes you up and allergy can make asthma worse. Asthma symptoms also at nighttime tends to be a little bit more frequent. So coughing and wheezing, people can wake up from that as well. Also for people who have snoring or sleep apnea, allergy has a direct impact. So snoring can get louder. People can have more episodes of stopping breathing, waking up choking, gasping for air. I always tell my sleep patients, especially this time of the year, to check in with their allergists. Having your allergies better controlled is going to help you sleep better. Yes, I absolutely agree with all of that. And that's why I thought that this would be such an important episode for us to cover is because so many of my patients complain of fatigue as one of their primary symptoms of their allergies during allergy season is just that they feel tired, that they just feel more exhausted and foggy during allergy season. And it sounds like it's most likely because their allergies are affecting their sleep and therefore their sleep just isn't as restorative as it normally is. Am I correct in that then? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the sequence of event. The allergies directly affecting sleep and poor sleep leading to fatigue and tiredness in the daytime. I can attest to that. When I first moved to Berlin, I I didn't really have bad allergies because I lived in other cities where like the pollens were different. And I moved to Berlin and the first year I was here, I went to my doctor and I was like, I think I have mono. I was like, I'm pretty sure I have mono because I'm so tired and da 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 And I like rang off all of the things about mono. And she's like, no, you have allergies. <laughs> and I looked at her like, of course I have allergies. I know that. And she's like, no, 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 you actually have allergies, but I'll test you for mono. But that's probably why you're tired and you aren't sleeping and all of that. And I couldn't believe her. I definitely thought I had mono. (laughs) Yeah. So I I definitely, I have also seen patients who have what I would call seasonal snoring or apneas, where their snoring and apneas only require treatment during allergy seasons. And it's because the the swelling in the in their sinuses in the back of the throat making these more of an issue during allergy season. Other times of the year, they're fine. Now, how can people? So, if we know that we have seasonal allergies and we know that that could potentially impact our sleep, how do we go about getting better sleep? Yes, absolutely. So, number one is talk to your allergist, and that's uh, what I tell my sleep patients too. Make sure you follow up all the recommendations from your allergists. The next step is if you do have snoring or sleep apnea, understand that during your allergy seasons, your treatments might have to be adjusted. For example, 
for sleep apnea, someone who is using CPAP, they, their pressures might have to be adjusted a little bit higher to keep their airways open so they don't stop breathing. Or they might find that the masks, that they, the type of mask they use are, are don't fit as well because their mouth may be open when they can breathe through their nose. So there may be air leak. So they might have to use a different type of mask when they're suffering from allergies. In general, I would say making, especially during allergy seasons, making sure that you follow a regular sleep-wake schedule, going to bed, waking up about the same time, giving yourself enough opportunity to rest, making sure that you get the amount of sleep your body needs. At least here, one kind of a overlapping phenomenon, natural phenomenon that's affecting sleep is that the pollen and allergies. And the other part is as we go into summer, we are experiencing longer daylight and that can shift our circadian rhythm. So make it harder to fall asleep at night. For people who have difficulty falling asleep at nighttime, it would be important to avoid exposure to, to light too late, late in the evening. And if that's not possible, because this sometimes it would be people would be driving from home, then wearing sunglasses in the evening so that the sunlight doesn't affect your circadian rhythm too much. Sunlight is the one of the, the strongest cue for our circadian rhythm. And if we're exposed to it late in the day, it might confuse our brain thinking that it's still early. And the effect would be just like caffeine, making it difficult to fall asleep later. I would say keeping a regular sleep-wake schedule, regular exercise in the daytime, have a, enough light exposure early in the day and avoid light late in the evening. That would be the scheduling part. And another thing that I just uh, thought of is if sinus congestion is a problem, then try to sleep on your side. Avoid sleeping on your back may be helpful. On our side, the drainage in our sinus is better. When you're on your back, the tongue, which is a big muscle, it gets relaxed, it can fall back and it could block our airway, affect your breathing. Your position would be helpful also avoiding your back. And I know another thing that is super important that I talk to people with uh, issues with their sleep is just sleep hygiene. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, you know, one of the things that I recommend for my allergy patients is during their season to make sure that their bedroom is their safe space. And so making sure that if they're allergic to pollen, that their windows are shut and their bedroom so that pollen isn't entering their, their bedroom space because we are there for seven to eight hours, hopefully. And then the other thing is just making sure that the pet doesn't come into the bedroom because then again, creating an allergy-free zone if you're allergic to your pet and then you bring that pet into your room, that's also going to lead to more allergies in that space. But I know that there's so much more around actual sleep hygiene that I really want wanted you to cover. Yeah. Actually, the question for you maybe after this is actually your opinion on HIPAA filter because I have people ask me a lot about that. But yeah, so sleep hygiene, I would say that a question I get a lot is around electronic use. The issue with electronic is the, the light exposure from it. Because like we said, light is a strong cue for our circadian rhythm and our body takes that as a signal to determine whether it's day or nighttime. If we continue to use our phone or 
stay on our, our computer too late, then it might confuse our brain and think that it's, it's still day. I recommend that people setting an electronic curfew, and that's usually half an hour to an hour before your actual bedtime, and you would shut off all the your devices. The other benefit of doing that is then it, you now can focus on relaxing your body, preparing your body to go into sleep mode. And that's, you know, activity that helps us relax. Our breathing slows down, our heart rate can slow down and our brain becomes more calm. So that's an half an hour to an hour of wind down period. That's very important. And what about exercise? Can you just comment on exercise too? Yeah. So exercise is a environmental cue to our circadian rhythm, just like light. And it's signaling to our body that it's still early and we're trying to be active. Because of that, exercise ideally should really be done earlier. If for time management reasons, it has to be done more in the evening, I would say that it should be definitely at least two hours before your actual bedtime. So the type of exercise that I'm referring to is cardio. The ones that gets you sweating, your heart rate goes up, your, your breathing gets fast. These are physiologic response that don't go with what happens when we sleep. That type of exercise, you want to do them earlier. Some people define exercise as yoga, Pilates, that, that still has some component of strength and core training in it. I feel that as long as it doesn't really rev up your metabolic response and the cardiovascular systems, those would be safer to if you need to, to do them later in the evening and, and still would be okay. Got it. So spin in the morning, yoga at night in the ideal world. <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to get back to your question about uh, HEPA filters or air purifiers. So I do recommend air purifiers for especially patients with animal allergies because they're really found to help get rid of animal dander from the air and also pollen allergies for people that just have to keep their windows open for various reasons. So those are the two that I think we have the most data on. Dust mite, we're allergic to their actual feces and the dust mite feces is pretty heavy. And so it actually settles. So unless you're cleaning and like doing all these things with dry cloth and kind of putting all of the dust mite into the air, the dust mite feces into the air regularly, the air purifier isn't really going to pick up the dust mite droppings as well. So that's one thing just regarding air purifiers, but a lot of air purifiers will say that they help with dust mites and, and but the data, I, I don't think it's as strong on that. What about the sheets that you can buy? You read about like these anti-dust mite sheets and all of these other kind of pillowcases. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So dust mite covers, essentially the principle behind dust mite covers is that dust mites, we're not allergic to them again, we're allergic to their droppings. They can burrow into your pillow or in to the mattress technically, and then they're pooping inside of that space. And so then over time, your entire pillow would just be full of dust mite poop. What the dust mite cover does is it prevents the dust mite from going into the pillow. And so that's what you're really protecting against. That's why I tell people, you know, if they didn't have dust mite covers and their pillows are pretty old to get new pillows and then start using dust mite covers regularly. So that's kind of the theory behind it. And yes, they make dust mite covers for everything. And I think 
think the most important for people that can't afford to get dust mite covers for their all their bedding is the pillow because that's where our face is sitting. And so that's where, you know, we might get the dust mite feces and allergen into our airway and into our nose and all of that kind of stuff. And I have one more question about sheets. So in Germany, you're going to hear a lot about Germany because Germans are like hilarious about their sleep. But in Germany, everyone airs out their blankets and pillows. So sometimes you just see like people's comforters, like hanging out the window. Is that an important part for allergy management? Obviously don't do it like in pollen season when like birch pollen is going to fall up on your bed and then it's going to fall on your pillows and then it's a disaster. But I see it in the summer, like in the front of the full sun. So is that important to air out your bedding and also vacuuming your mattresses and your bedding? So, right. So sheet care. So, you know, in general, to get rid of dust mite droppings, you want to wash your sheets in hot water, not cold water, not warm water. And the recommendation is to do that at least once a week. And then as far as putting them outside, I think that for anybody with outdoor allergens, that's not a good idea because you are going to be then covering your entire bed, you know, with the pollen from the outside. So I definitely wouldn't agree with that. So vacuuming your mattress in general, uh, vacuuming is super important, especially for rugs and things like that and couches and anything that's kind of upholstered. And so you could technically remove some of the potential irritants by doing that. So I don't think it's a bad idea if you can do that. And if you have the time to do that, I don't think it's a bad idea. Thank you. I feel guilty that I have yet to put my blankets outside in the sun and now I don't have to. <laughs> I'm like the, the one neighbor who doesn't display their bedding to the whole world. <laughs> I, I grew up in Taiwan and we, we used to do that, putting our, put our bedding. I, I always thought it was because um, it's humid in Taiwan and maybe it's the mold or something we are trying to kill with the sun and the heat. I don't know. It was something that we did. Well, I also think that uh, oftentimes because, you know, my family is in India and also in England. And I think that a lot of other countries, actually, they don't use dryers as much as we do. They tend to air dry more often. And, and it's a way of conserving energy. I think in the U.S. where we use heavy duty dryers, we don't need to put anything outside necessarily. But I think in other countries where they don't have that heat going into their clothes and their you know bedding and things like that, I think that that makes sense potentially in those areas. Back to sleep. I have a question since we talked about heat a little bit. What about room temperature when you're sleeping? Yes. So room temperature, the recommendation is between 60 to 67 degrees, keeping it cool. And that would be my, my interpretation is whatever your preferences doesn't have to be between 60 to 67 or otherwise you're not going to sleep well. But I think it's whatever your preferences at night, keeping it on the cooler side. Amazing. I feel like this is just such an important topic and I'm so glad that we're covering it in general. And I think that the other question that we had had for you was just how allergy medications might affect sleep and if there's anything particular that we have to pay attention to. Yes. So allergy medication, it's like a double-edged sword. Hopefully it's helping your allergy symptoms and so your sleep can be improved. The side effects of allergy medication One is definitely that drowsiness can extend into the day. 
So even though it's taken at nighttime or even it's supposedly non-sedating, we've definitely all seen patients who can still be affected by it. The other is for people who have restless leg syndrome, antihistamine, which is one of the uh, most common allergy medications like Benadryl, antihistamine, that class itself can make restless leg syndrome worse. So having the creepy crawly sensation in your legs that's worse at night, relief by nighttime can get worse. And so that could affect people's sleep. And I understand that a lot of your listeners are are moms. So women are at higher risk for restless legs and pregnancy itself is a risk factor too. So nearly a third of pregnant women have restless legs. So this is just something to keep in mind about allergy medications. And is there a difference for first generation versus second generation antihistamines with that increase in restless leg syndrome? Can you clarify what restless leg syndrome is before we jump into Dr. G's question? Yeah, restless legs, it's um, jumpy legs. It's usually the street term and it's entirely a a clinical diagnosis, meaning you don't need any test. It's based on three symptoms. And if you have all three, you have restless legs. One is creepy crawly, or some people describe it as just weird discomfort, heat kind of sensation in the legs that gets worse in the night. It could be before going to bed. It could be something that wakes you up in the middle of the night. And that's relieved by movement. So by moving your legs around, some people get up and walk around and it gets better. If you meet these three criteria, then you have restless legs. So Dr. G was, oh, yes. So the second generation supposedly have less of an effect, uh, exacerbating restless leg syndrome, but still can. Got it. And just to remind our listeners, the first generation are things like Benadryl and they're the older antihistamines. And then the second generation are the newer uh, antihistamines like cetirizine or Zyrtec, fexofenadine or Allegra, loratadine or Claritin. So those are some of the newer antihistamines that don't cause as much sedation. And I guess also wouldn't increase as much your restless leg syndrome if that's a factor for you. And one other thing, so the daytime sleepiness that can occur with antihistamines. Now, how does that affect your nighttime sleeping? Because sometimes patients will say, well, it'll help me sleep better at night, the sedation. And is that, is that necessarily true or? Yeah. So if you're using it also like a sleeping pill effect, it's okay because hopefully the reason you're not sleeping well is because of allergies. And I I always want to make sure that when people are treating their sleep problems, they're not just treating the symptom. And if you're taking an allergy pill that takes care of your allergies and make you a little bit sleepy, I think it's the perfect combination. What I see and would against is people using allergy pills just to help them sleep, even when they don't have allergy symptoms, then that would be just to cover up the symptom and not treating the root of the problem. And in that case, the root of the problem being an actual sleep disorder or issue as opposed to the symptoms of allergies causing you to have issues with sleep. Correct. I guess to round it off, when should somebody go and see a sleep specialist? When is it just time to really look at your sleep and find a a specialist that can help you figure out if there's something better that you could be doing or if you actually have some kind of disordered sleep pattern that needs medication or treatment? 
two reasons. One is if the sleep problems are starting to affect your day, your energy level, your mood, memory, concentration, then that's definitely a reason to talk to your doctor. But keep in mind for women, a lot of times how we experience sleep problems is different from men. Uh, it's not so much the sleep itself having an issue, but feeling depressed, feeling sad, feeling fatigued. These are very common complaints for women with sleep issues. The other reason for you to think about talking to a doctor for your sleep issue is if it's been, been going on for a while. We can all have occasional bad nights. That's part of life. Stress, kids waking you up or just having any kind of discomfort. So occasionally having bad nights is normal. But if sleep issues has been going on for weeks, months, then you should definitely talk to a doctor about that. Amazing. Courtney, any other questions? I mean, I just have a lot of questions for myself. So <laughs> no, no, I found this super interesting. I guess the only other questions I really have is, I don't know if we want to talk anything about eczema and sleep and just whether like that would impact your eczema is like not getting enough sleep because that could that impact your flares? So I think I just want to answer that one in a certain way is that any disorder can affect sleep and it's always the chicken or the egg, you know, is it the eczema that's keeping you up at night that's causing your sleep to be affected? And then it's a vicious cycle because ultimately if your eczema is keeping you up, then you're not sleeping well, then you're eczema can also get worse because you're not sleeping well and because of the stress on your body of not sleeping well. So it is a vicious cycle where you have to conquer both issues, figure out how to relieve the itching and eczema and control that so that your sleep can be better so that your sleep doesn't end up then making your eczema worse. Agree. I can't say it any better than that. Yeah, thank you. I feel like it's similar to the asthma situation where you mm -hmm. wake up scratching. You also wake with eczema, but with asthma, you wake up having a hard time breathing. And I think they just feed into each other and you kind of get exhausted and you don't manage your different atopic conditions very well when you're so tired. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, any medical condition that Dr. Carroll will probably attest to can interfere with your sleep if it's not controlled well. And so controlling any of your medical conditions optimally is super important so that your sleep isn't affected because as we've heard today, sleep is just such an important part of our overall health. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's the other way is sleep is poor, it makes it harder to manage your other medical conditions. Right. So both of them, managing your chronic conditions and then also making sure you're getting enough sleep so that your chronic conditions don't get worse because of the stress of right. not sleeping well. Any other last thoughts that you have for us or our audience? Um, no. Yeah. I think that uh, we, we covered a lot today. We did cover a lot and we really appreciate your time. And I actually wanted you to talk a little bit about your practice because I know that you're actually licensed to practice medicine in several states and you're doing a telemedicine platform for sleep disorders. So I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about that. I'm a board certified sleep physician and I have over 10 years of clinical experience. I was a medical director at a sleep disorder center for many years. And last year I decided to follow my dreams and create my own path. So I've created Beehive Sleep Health, which is a telehealth sleep service for women. And I chose to serve women 
because there's a neat gap. For a long time, science has looked at the woman body simply as a smaller version of the men. And we know that's not true. So over time, women's changing bodies, our menstrual cycle, pregnancy, menopause can all affect sleep. So seeing that that gap, that need, and that's why I decided to focus on women's sleep health. I can attest to that as a new mom and, you know, having just gone through a pregnancy, I don't think I slept at the end of my pregnancy because of the discomfort. And then, and then of course, when you have a newborn, you really don't sleep. So yeah. it's, uh, it's definitely more of a burden on women. Absolutely. 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 Yes. Yeah. So thank you. I love your website. I love the name. I love everything about it. So I think it's, it's amazing. And I might use your services at some point soon. <laughs> so um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To help. Thank you for creating that. And I'm just, and, and I really love that you're following your dream and that you created this amazing platform for people. And that uh, I think it's a great service that you're providing for others. So thank you again for being on our podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.